All right, Hebrews chapter 11. For many of you, Hebrews 11 is one of the most familiar passages in the Bible. Many Christians love this beautiful chapter. Many have called it the hall of faith. Now, while familiarity can be a wonderful thing, and often is, it can also be a dangerous thing. Uh, We may become so accustomed to these words in Scripture that we can actually lose sight of their meaning and the function within the larger context of the book of Hebrews. So let's just talk about the larger context for a moment before we jump into... We're just going to look at one verse from Hebrews 11 today. I may remind you, Hebrews 11 is coming after a series of many different warnings that have been spread out through the book of Hebrews. The author's been reminding the Hebrew people not to take the gospel lightly, and not to have a superficial understanding of sin. For example, look at the previous chapter, 10, and uh, verse 31. Look at verse 31, so you can see him doing it here. He says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So indeed, he, he's even warning them what's going to happen to people who spurn the Son of God and they set aside the gospel. Look what he does in verse 29. Same chapter 10, verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. And then verse 32 connects the exhortations that that you see in chapter 10 there with chapter 11. See the connection here? It's kind of like a bridge. Verse 32 says, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. So those are words that not only do they need to remember, but we need to remember as we enter into chapter 11. We need to remember the hard struggle that the audience is called to endure. I want you to look what the author reminds them in verse 39 as he ends this chapter. Verse 39 says, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So notice a theme going on here. It's a theme of perseverance. Perseverance. Now what is the connection? Well, perseverance is the demonstration of your faith. How do you know if your faith is real? Someone who has real faith is going to persevere despite suffering and hardships. Faith is grounded in what God has done for us in Christ. So the author here expresses confidence that his audience's endurance of of that persecution is a demonstration of their faith. They're, They're showing their faith to be genuine and real. And so this leads us into the main subject of Hebrews 11, which of course is faith. So let's just read the the one verse, uh, the main main verse we're going to look at today, which is Hebrews 11, verse 4. 
Hebrews 11.4 says this, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. And so from our one verse in this beautiful hall of faith, the proposition today is this, my friends, that God wants you to imitate the faith of Abel. God wants you to imitate the faith of Abel. Now, why would I say that? Well, again, we we see the greater context of Hebrews. If you just back up a few chapters, let me just remind you what we've already covered back in chapter 6. And you'll, you'll see the connection here to the Hall of Faith. As we look at the Hall of Faith, these, these people of faith, look what Hebrews 6, verse 11 says. Hebrews 6, 11. And we desire each uh, one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Key word there, imitators. God has put these people here for us in Scripture. He's reminding us of these people. Those sinners they were. They were not perfect. Nevertheless, they're there. We don't imitate their sin, but... The things that are there we can imitate, and particularly their faith. You say, well, what is the point? Well, God wants you to imitate their faith and then join them in this beautiful inheritance, these promises. You say, well, what is faith? Let me remind you what faith is. God described it for you in verse 1 back in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, 1, he describes it as this. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And it's interesting that Abel is the first person whom God puts in in this list of people of faith. A lot of people have asked, well, why is Abel the first Bible character mentioned here? And when the author of the epistle of Hebrews decided to list some of the great Old Testament saints who had distinguished themselves by their strong faith in God. It's interesting. The first person he chose was this man named Abel. Why do you suppose he's listed first? (laughs) Well, here's some of the reasons people have conjectured about. Uh, He was a member of the first family that ever lived on planet Earth. Obviously, his parents were Adam and Eve. You can read about them in Genesis. Uh, he's also the first person born after the fall, of whom it was recorded that he was righteous. Jesus called him righteous in the book of Matthew. He's called righteous here as well. He is the first righteous person who signified his worship of God by an outward act, bringing a sacrifice to God. He's the first person to be persecuted for being righteous. Maybe he's the first martyr in the Bible. His father Adam, by the way, never mentioned in the New Testament in connection to his faith. 
but only his failure at the fall. So maybe, maybe one of those reasons or all those reasons, I don't know, of why Abel is mentioned first. So this, just one verse here in Hebrews 11 to mention Abel. Why is he here? Well, you really need to go back to Genesis chapter 4 to get uh, the story of Abel's life. So would you go with me? Go back to the beginning. Let's remind ourselves what the Bible says in Genesis 4. We'll just read what the Bible says about Abel in Genesis 4, starting in verse 1. Genesis 4, verse 1. The Bible says that Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord, that's Yahweh, had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. In other words, his, his countenance, the, the, the stuff you could see going on the outside is showing what's going on in the inside. And so verse 6 says that Yahweh said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. We'll stop there. You can turn back to Hebrews 11. So that's the story of Cain, or sorry, not Cain, but Abel's life. Of course, that's not all of his life. Some say that Cain and Abel were in the hundreds of years when this happened, okay? So they're not little infants when this is happening. So that's the story of Abel's life as it's recorded in Scripture. But now let's look at what Hebrews 11 is all about, Abel's faith. Abel's faith. Now in Hebrews 11, verse 4 here, this one verse, Abel is said to have done three things. That's all it mentions, three things, and he's done them all by faith. So let's examine each of those three things, and, and as we look at those three things that he's done by faith, we want to try to learn what we can about Abel's faith in God. Notice, first of all, that Abel offered a superior sacrifice. And, and, and all these things are done by faith in God, I remind you. So he offers a superior sacrifice, verse 4 says. And so the question may be answered by noting two ways. And the question is, well, what's the superior sacrifice that God's commending him for? And so you can answer the question by noting two ways in which these sacrifices mentioned here were different from each other, and in which Abel's sacrifice was far superior to that of Cain. 
the, the main one the Bible's talking about here is Abel's sacrifice is, is given by faith in God. I'll get to that point in a moment, but let me just mention the, uh, another one here. The first one is that it was superior in content. Abel's sacrifice was superior in content. Now, Scripture does not specifically say that Abel brought of the first of his flock by the Lord's direction. Nevertheless, it does seem likely that God had revealed to Adam and his children that he could not be approached in worship apart from the shedding of blood. If you remember back in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, it, it, it seems appropriate that there in the Garden of Eden that animals must have been slain in order for God to clothe Adam and Eve with the coats of skin. And so in the process, God was setting a precedent for their children to follow. You come to God through a blood sacrifice. Death is what was required for sin. After all, it was by faith that Abel offered this sacrifice, and faith must be based on some revelation of God. Right? <laughs> faith is not a leap in the dark. Faith is, is, is reasonable. Did you remember what God said in verse 1? It, it has assurance. It has a confidence in something that's real. And in this case, it's based on the revelation of God. So... They, they, Adam and Eve must have passed on to their children the revelation of God. Note that the very first act of worship that God approved here involved a bleeding animal that was acting as a substitutionary sacrifice. The, the animal took the place of the human being. And so the principle of the shed blood was to be operative through God's program, we, we've seen that in the book of Hebrews, right? With, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And, and all those Old Testament sacrifices were actually only serving as a pointer. They're, they're pointing to the Lamb of God who would come to take away the sin. It was the true Lamb of God, Jesus, who by His shed blood would not just cover sin, but ultimately deal with the sin. He, he actually took it away. He didn't just cover it. He removed it. Psalm 103 says, as far as the east is from the west. That's how far he's removed our sin. So it was superior in content. Notice Cain's, as a gardener's, bringing his fruit and veggies or whatever it was. But Abel's bringing an animal. Of course, the animals representing this as his substitute before God. But primarily, it was Abel's offering here was superior in in the intent. Of course, God can see the heart; He knows what's going on inside. We we've seen throughout the Old Testament, the Bible over and over again says, "God cares what is going on in your heart. What are the motives? What are you thinking when you come to Him?" All that blood of the bulls and the goats and your offerings and your sacrifices, God says, they're meaningless to me if your heart is far from me. 
don't, don't be a hypocrite and come to me, God says, you know, if you don't actually mean what you're doing. So Genesis 4.4 teaches that God looked with favor not only on Abel's offering, but even on the person of Abel himself. Why is that? Well, because Abel's offering was motivated by faith. That's what Hebrews 11.4 says. His faith is in God's plan of redemption. Maybe he didn't get the full picture, but he knew enough. He knew enough. He's looking forward to the Messiah. He's looking forward to this Lamb of God who had come. Cain did not make his offering by faith, and so he eventually killed his brother. And, and, and we know why he did that, because in 1 John chapter 3, it says his works were evil. That's Cain's works were evil, but Abel's were righteous. So we kind of know what's going on inside Cain and Abel based on other portions of Scripture. And so here we learn that the the true difference in worship is not just in the outward ceremony, but in the inward attitude. I'll elaborate, elaborate on that in a moment, but Abel's offering here revealed that he acknowledged his own sin before God. And and in the process, he recognized that's bad news. And so he's he's seeking atonement from the only one who can help him, who, of course, is God. So he's running to God in the way that God's prescribed. But what's Cain doing? Cain's offering there is revealing no admission of his guilt. And by offering to God the fruit of the ground, he only acknowledged that God was the creator and and the preserver of the universe. Well, that doesn't save you. See, Cain did not know God as his redeemer. Right? Yes, recognize God as creator, but you need to know Jesus as your redeemer. He's the one who buys you from the slave market of sin. See, he's not acknowledging his sin. He doesn't care about his sin. He did not have faith in God's redemptive plan, and so therefore his act of worship wasn't accepted by God because he didn't approach God with the right heart attitude. God can see Cain's heart. He can see Abel's heart, and that's why he accepts Cain's, no, sorry, Abel's sacrifice. The other thing we, we need to note here about Abel's faith is that Abel was commended as a righteous man. Several places in Scripture mention he is a righteous man. And although many commentators, by the way, this is interesting, that many commentators have suggested that God showed his approval for Abel's sacrifice by sending down fire from heaven and consuming the sacrifice on the altar, I can't actually find anywhere in Scripture where it actually says that. That's an interesting theory. Maybe it happened, maybe it didn't. Okay, But we know it's conjecture, right? Because Scripture doesn't explicitly say that. The Bible only tells us He showed His approval, but does not say how God showed that approval. So the important point is not how God did it, but that he commended his righteousness. The important point is that Yahweh declared Abel to be righteous in his sight. Why? Why did he do that? 
Well, because Abel was obedient and offered a better sacrifice. No, Abel was accounted righteous because of his faith, not because of good works, not because he's doing the so-called right thing, but it's the faith that is accounted to him as righteousness. So here at the beginning of history, we're really face-to-face with this great doctrine running throughout Scripture. It's called justification by faith alone. Justification means you're, you're justified in God's sight. You're declared righteous. It's just as if you had never sinned. And, and it gets better. You get the righteousness of Christ imputed to you. And so God didn't declare him righteous because he's, he's so awesome <laughs> and he's done all these good works, but because, just says here in verse 4, because of his faith. And of course, the object was God. So Abel was not made righteous because of his works. He's declared righteous by God because of faith. And the only way you can be justified in God's sight is by faith. There is no other means, no other way. So that's Abel's faith here. But there's a message that God wants us to learn from this as well. Because in Hebrews 11.4, It says that through Abel's faith here, though he died, he still speaks. Have you thought of that? Abel's dead, and he's been dead for thousands of years. How is it that he still speaks to us today? How is that? What is his message? Well, number one, authentic faith produces an authentic witness. Don't get the cart before the horse here. You don't get the authentic witness without authentic faith. By his faith, Abel still has something to say to us today. Though he, Even though he's been dead thousands of years, he still speaks. That's interesting because there's been Christians throughout church history who've done all sorts of paintings and different stories of the Bible. There's an interesting painter by the name of William Blake uh, you may not have ever heard of him, seen this painting. But anyway, he, he captured Abel's death on canvas as he painted this story. And in the background, it's interesting, you have Abel's body laying dead on the ground, and it is, it's a pale gray in death. But in the front ground, or the foreground of the painting, Cain is fleeing, he's running away from his dead brother, and his body is is actually moving away, and he's sprinting, but his, his torso's twisted, and he, it's like he's looking at the audience. His mouth is open, it's gaping, and you could tell by his body language he's in agony. His hands are stopping up his ears in an attempt to shut out the wail of his brother's blood that has been spilled on the ground. And in Genesis book of Genesis, we see Abel's blood is crying for retribution. But here in Hebrews 11, it's Abel's example of faith that is actually calling to us, and it is a glorious witness. So what, what lessons do the faith and the blood of Abel teach us today? Number one or two, depending on how you look at this, my second point here, is that God's people 
will be hated by the world. And I'm getting this point from a, a cross-reference. If you have a Bible with cross-references, I'm, those, are, those are often helpful. And, there's a, there's, and we need to understand that the Apostle John, in another passage in 1 John 3, explained why Cain killed Abel. And, and it says, well, I'll put it on the screen here for you if you're not good at turning in Scriptures. It says that Abel's good works were a condemnation of Cain's evil works. And then I want you to notice that he then wrote, it should be no wonder to us that the people who belong to a different kingdom and are living for a different purpose in this world are going to hate and despise people who live right. That's what it means to be righteous. You, you live right according to God's standards. And so notice what the Apostle John says here in the context of Cain and Abel. It says, 1 John three twelve. We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised that the world hates you. So there's the next verse in context. That is a lesson that we need to learn. And it's one of the lessons that Abel is still preaching to us today. So when you get to heaven, if you get to heaven, you're going to see Abel. And this is one of the things he wants to tell you. That God's people will be hated by the world. Expect it. Don't be, the Bible says, a couple times it says, don't be surprised, brothers and sisters. This is what you should expect. In fact, Jesus even taught us that as well. Listen to Jesus' words in John 15 here. He says, if the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Do you understand this, my friends? Some of you are thinking about a workmate right now, right? A worldly workmate, an unbelieving workmate who is a non-Christian. He doesn't like you. You seem to have a lot of conflict with this workmate. You know, think about that person. Some of you are thinking of one right now, or maybe one you used to have. Why is there a conflict with that workmate? Maybe you can think of a family member or someone else, a a neighbor or whoever. Why do you have conflict? Why does this person get irritated with you? Why do you have a hard time communicating and talking with this person and and getting along? Why is that? Jesus says, you're not of the world. You're you're of a different world. right? You're in it, Jesus says, but Jesus says, don't let the world be in you. Don't allow this world to conform you into its image, Romans 12 says. The Apostle John says, don't love the world, don't love the things in the world. If you do, he says, the love of the Father is not in you. Oh, that's scary. That means you're not a Christian. If you love this world more than you love God, that shows a serious heart problem then, doesn't it? The love of the Father is not in you. 
And so Jesus says, expect it. The Apostle John says, expect it. This is the, this is the message that Abel still preaches to us today. God's people are going to be hated by this world we live in. Because you're, you're not of this world. You're just passing through it. And it's interesting. Uh, I, I'm reading a children's version of Pilgrim's Progress to one of my children. And I've read Pilgrim's Progress to my other children. I, I, I'm pretty sure I have. Pilgrim's Progress, possibly the second greatest book ever written in the entire world. If you've never read it, highly recommend it. But it's very interesting as as Christian is on his way to the celestial city. He comes to a city called Vanity Fair. It's a very worldly city, an ungodly city. These are people of the evil prince, Satan himself. (laughs) And so Christian has no interest in staying in this city. He's just on the way to the great city, the city of King Jesus. But he has to go through Vanity Fair. and, And, of course, all the people in Vanity Fair don't understand, hey, Christian, come on, this is a great place. Why don't you just stick around for a while and enjoy it? Oh, Christian's not interested. So immediately they stop mocking him and making fun of him, and, and they, they end up getting in a, the people in the, the city there end up fighting Christian and his friend, faithful, thrown in jail. Christian's friend is eventually killed Eventually, Christian gets out, but it's, it's, as John Bunyan was writing that story, he's showing this is what a Christian should expect. <laughs> this world is like Vanity Fair. We're not to enjoy this life. Our heart isn't to be here, right? Don't, don't let your affections, Colossians says, chapter 3, don't let your affections be set here on this earth. But instead, your affections are to be on God and in the world to come, your real home in that celestial city. So Abel's teaching us that God's people will be hated by this world. And number three, third lesson that Abel teaches today is that God takes account of every righteous deed. In other words, God knows everything. Don't be surprised, He does. And we need to follow Abel's example, and we need to learn to always do right, no matter what the consequences might be. Now, some people will only serve God if they know they're going to receive some public praise in return. They they want a pat on the back, or they want money, or they they love the praise of people. They want to look good. They want fame or fortune or whatever it might be. Others. They just refuse to serve at the first sign of any kind of opposition. They're like that guy in Pilgrim's Progress. When Christian was leaving the city of destruction, one of his friends, Pliable, Pliable was interested in why Christian was leaving the city of destruction, so he kind of follows Christian out of the city. Why are you doing this? I mean, What's wrong with our city of destruction? <laughs> so Christian's explaining. Anyway, the, the Christian's got this huge burden on his back. He wants to get rid of this burden. And anyway, eventually they, uh, they're, they're walking along the trail there, and they come to the slough or the swamp of despond. Of course, uh, Christian gets stuck in that swamp, 
and he's, he's sinking, and he needs some help to get out, and Pliable's like, oh, I've had enough of this. You know, he gives up. He goes back home to the city of destruction. He, he can't understand. You know, he's been taught the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, apparently, right? He, he was taught that, you know, you, you, if you come to Christ, your life's going to be easy. You're going to become wealthy, and you're going to have lots of money, and you have fame and fortune and all this stuff. Well, that's what he's been taught by the false gospel. And when that doesn't come true, then, well, you just go back to what you know, right? Go back to the city of destruction. After all, Jesus says broad is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way that leads to life. Few there find it. And that's the way a lot of people are. But we need to determine to do what's right and not allow ourselves to be swayed by public opinion. Don't be like a politician licking your finger Stick it up into the wind and see which way is the wind blowing, right? Right? What's public opinion? And then I'll make my mind up based on that, right? Let's take a poll. No, we don't want to do that. We serve God. We always need to keep one thought before us. To do what we do with no thought for public recognition because God sees us and He's going to reward us. Do you care what God thinks? I'm sure you'd say, yeah, I care what God thinks. But do you care what God thinks more than what your neighbor thinks? Do you know that God's going to reward you? So let's continue to be faithful in obeying God and then be assured that He knows, He notices when nobody else notices and He's going to reward you for it. Well, there's a fourth lesson that Abel still teaches us today is this, that religious activity does not make one right with God. You can do all kinds of religious stuff. Sacrifices, offerings, good works. That doesn't make you right with God. How do we know that? Well, look at the text. What did Cain do? Cain performed an act of worship to God. But his heart was not right with God. God could see his heart, and that's why his sacrifice was condemned. So, my friends, we need to be careful not ever to assume that in our lives that just because we're busy in Christian service, that somehow God is satisfied with that busyness. No amount of activity can replace true devotion to God. It can't. Don't offer, God says, don't offer to me those sacrifices when your heart's far from me. Don't offer to God the best of your labor when you need to be offering Him yourself. Too many people refuse to offer their own self, their life. I'll give, I'll throw God a little bit of money. I'll throw God a little bit of time. I'll do this good work. But He's not getting my heart. Nah, that's mine. God's not impressed. Because authentic authentic faith produces authentic worship. That's why Jesus in John 4, 24 says, You can't worship God unless you come to Him in spirit and in truth. Spirit being your entire being. Your mind, your emotions, your will. It's all engaged. You're all in. In other words, you can't sit on the fence. You know, you ever seen somebody sitting on a fence? You know what I mean by that? Right? 
And that's not good when it's an electric fence, trust me. It's shocking. That's a terrible joke, I know. Um, it really is. And if you if you want to know how to go over a fence, just talk to the farmers. They know how to they know how to do it properly without getting shocked. But don't lose sight of the illustration here. Right? We 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 know the illustration about fence sitting, right? Somebody's trying to have one foot in, in both paddocks on both sides, you know, like not quite making up their mind. They're wavering, they're all over the place, you know. Do I do this? Do this? Mm, I love Jesus. Ooh, I love this world, you know. And so they're sitting on the fence trying to do both and getting shocked in the process, right? See, authentic faith produces authentic worship. It's spirit and truth. You're all in or nothing. And the fifth lesson that Abel's teaching us is that authentic faith then produces authentic righteousness. In other words, you can't make this up. You can't produce this and righteousness, by the way, I mean by that is right living. You have this right standing before God that produces the right living. You can't do that. The only way that happens, according to John 15, is you have to be connected to the vine. You're a branch. Right? Take a branch off the vine. Can it produce fruit? No. The vine has to be connected to, sorry, the branch has to be connected to the vine in order to do anything, even survive. So theology here is what drives our methodology. In other words, what you believe is end up causing you to do things. Causes you to do stuff. You're going to do what you believe, in other words. And so that's why... Theology is what drives your methodology, what you do. And that was the case for Abel. Abel believed some things about God, and he he believed in God and his plan and was able to do that no matter what. Well, this this is a truth that is taught elsewhere in Scripture as well, according to uh, James. James actually argues that faith and works are inseparable. In other words, Living faith actually produces living action. So look what James says here in chapter 2, verse 17. It's on the screen. He says, Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So they're inseparable. Somebody can't say... um, I have faith, and then they don't do any works. It's just doesn't work, right? If if the vine, sorry, if the branch is connected to the vine, it's going to bear much fruit. That's what happens. It shows the works coming from Jesus Christ. So it produces this authentic righteousness. And the the sixth lesson that Abel teaches us is that we must serve God by faith in order to please Him. So within the context of Hebrews 11, look at verse 6. It says that without faith it is impossible to please God. It's impossible. You can't. And so God is looking for an attitude of faith in our acts of worship. He sees your heart. He knows your attitude, your motives, all of that. 
do you ever, for example, here's one way you could evidence this, if you will. Do you ever read God's Word without really believing what it says? Has that ever happened to you? You ever had one of those, you're reading your Bible, you're having your, your morning devotions or whenever you're reading your Bible, and you're, you read it and it's an aha moment. And uh, it, it's, it's like you get hit right here between the eyeballs, right? It's like the Holy Spirit hits you and you're like, wow, that's amazing. That's incredible. I see the words on the page. Now, am I going to actually believe that? And have you ever sat there, maybe in your own mind, arguing with God? Hmm. <laughs> well, that shows something, doesn't it? You've you, you got to serve God by faith in order to please Him. And another way of thinking about this, do you ever pray without trusting God to answer your request and meet your needs? You have to pray by faith. We need to remember that it is impossible to please God without faith. You pray in faith, you read God's Word in faith, you serve Him in faith, everything is done by faith in God. But there's a last lesson, number seven. One more lesson that Abel still teaches us today, and is this, that God's going to take vengeance on the persecutors of His people important lesson because it's not your job it's not my job it's not even the government's job well sometimes it is but that's another story but we see in the story here Abel was killed by his brother Cain Cain was judged he was cursed by God even in this life the Bible says and and persecution may seem fierce at times for Christians and it is You, you realize Christians are the most persecuted minority in the entire world. The statistics prove it. Go look them up for yourself. And we may even have to face martyrdom. And I, and I think even in New Zealand, we can expect to be put in jail very, very soon. We are certainly being persecuted by the media. We are being persecuted by unbelievers. You can expect it. It's already happening. Your businesses might be shut down simply because you're a Christian and you believe the Bible. But we don't need to fear because God is in control. He's going to deal with our oppressors because God is a God of justice. They will not get away with it. They might in this life. They certainly won't in the next. That's a comfort should be a comfort to know that God loves His children. He knows His children individually. He knows what's happening to you. And He knows you so much that He will punish all those people and governments that try to harm His children. It's not your responsibility to retaliate, to take out vengeance, to get even, or certainly to get ahead. Here's what the Bible says. And by the way, Romans chapter 12 is quoting from the Old Testament here. So look what it says, Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, quoting Old Testament, quoting the Psalms, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 
So whose responsibility, whose job is it to take vengeance? Not yours. It's God's. By the way, he can do a far better job than you will ever do. He will bring justice. So leave it in his hands. And so that is, that is how you can do what Jesus did when he's on the cross and even say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How can you forgive somebody who is torturing you and killing you? Because you leave it in the God of justice's hands, right? You leave it in his hands, the great one who knows what he's doing. And so I ask you, can you honestly say that you share Abel's faith? Do you? You share Abel's faith? Are you imitating the faith of Abel? Do you really serve God by faith? Or is it you, your strength, your works? Does the least bit of opposition cause you to have second thoughts about doing what's right? You know, you hit that speed bump in life, and you're like, <laughs> I'm done. The Bible, Jesus, the Apostle John, is telling us you can expect a lot of speed bumps as you go through the Christian life. So don't allow the canes of this world to intimidate you. Don't. <laughs> Keep your eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? We're gonna, we'll see that in the next chapter. The very next chapter, right? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your face. Keep, keep looking to him. Believe his promises. Serve him faithfully because you know that you serve Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ knows you intimately, personally, and he's going to reward you. May God enable you to imitate the faith of Abel. Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Thank you for this glorious verse, this precious verse. One little life, not not much mentioned about him. But may we understand that Abel still speaks to us today. May we take to heart the message of Abel and the faith that you gave to him. Trust in you, no matter what was going on around him, even even though at least one of his family members (laughs) did. didn't have faith, and his works were evil. May we have this kind of faith. Give us this kind of faith by your grace. May we stand strong for you in a world that does not love you and in a world that hates Jesus Christ, that hates God's Word. May we expect the opposition. May we stand strong by your grace, holding fast to the truth and to Christ and to Him alone. May we recognize that uh, this is just normal for being a Christian. But may we not get caught up by distractions in this life. May our affections not be on things down here. But may our affections and our heart be set above on Christ and eternity in heaven. Give us that kind of faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.